Hello. Uh, am I speaking with Douglas Diamond? Speaking. Oh, hello. My name is Adam Smith, calling from NobelPrize.org, the website of the Nobel Prize. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Congratulations on the award of the Prize in Economic Sciences. Thanks very much. I believe so far you're the only one of the three laureates that the committee has reached. <laughs> yeah. How did the news reach you? So I was uh, I was sound asleep, and uh, my uh, cell phone was right next to me, and the phone rang, and I was wondering what it was, and then I heard a Swedish voice on the line, and I was hoping that I wasn't being pranked by one of my friends, and uh, it turned out I was not, and then a couple of members of three members of the of the actual committee spoke to me on the phone, and I realized this was was indeed the real thing. You have been tipped many years in the past. Have you prepared for this in the in your thoughts? I have for a couple of reasons. One, Washington University had a conference uh, several years ago on the paper with Phil Dibvig. So we you know, had to think a little bit about um, you know, the broader context in which this stuff, which our, which, which, which our work and, and my work um, fit. And then, you know, just from teaching both masters and, and, and PhD students about it, I've thought many times about, you know, why did we do things and what, what were we thinking when we were building certain parts of the model? So that, that gave me a chance to think uh, a little more broadly rather than about the exact research project I was working on that particular day. Mm. And that diamond div figure model has been so influential. Um, what drove you to explore the fragility of banks? So there were two things in the background. One, just from my own background, before I started speaking with, with Phil Divig about it, is I had been very influenced by an amazing book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz called The Monetary History of the United States. And it had a very um, interesting chapter about the, 19, the, the 1929 to 33 um, Great Depression and the role of bank runs in it. And it always struck me that the verbal description they gave there of how the process worked was only part of the problem. So I felt like that was very interesting, but an incomplete story. But I didn't really have a good way to think about what was the better explanation. And then uh, Phil Dibbig, who was a, a classmate of mine, we were both students of um, Stephen A. Ross, the, the, the late Steve Ross. Um, so we thought we need to think about the idea of how we can use some parts of game theory to understand financial crises. And sort of the simple idea is that bank runs are sort of self-fulfilling prophecies, to use the, the term of Robert K. Merton, mm. the sociologist. And then... The point of our model was, why does the financial system, banks as a good example, write a contract where a bank run is a self-fulfilling prophecy and not having a bank run is also a self-fulfilling prophecy? That's sort of the natural instability we were trying to get at. And the point that we came up with was that it was not that the banks 
were somehow responsible for falls in the in the price level and deflation. Not that the bank's liabilities were a means of payment like money, but just that bank liabilities, bank deposits were short-term and, and a source of liquidity in the portfolios of their holders. So if I'm a depositor, I have a short-term deposit that I think, hey, I can take this out whenever I want. Uh, and then that's very valuable to me. But if everybody takes it out, then we're in trouble. So that was how we started thinking about self-fulfilling prophecies. That's how, and then it's not about banks. It could be many types of other financial institutions that are sometimes in modern times called shadow banks. It's about contract form. It's not about money. Mm. Clearly related to money, but we, we had no notion of money in the way we modeled it. Hmm. Interesting. And are you broadly happy with the way that policymakers have interpreted your work, especially in the way that they've um, insured deposits in banks? Yes. Yeah, so we, we think deposit insurance, particularly very high levels of deposit insurance, not you know, say, you know, 10,000 euros worth of deposit insurance, high levels of deposit insurance definitely make the financial sector as a whole, not just banks, much more stable. You know, after the 1930s, the, the financial sector of, you know, the, the developed world uh, was, was quite stable, basically, until the, the 2008 you know, crisis. Uh, and then during the, the 2008 crisis, um, and the policymakers around the world who were, you know, informed by the economics literature were thinking about fear of fear itself. Self-fulfilling prophecies was something that they had to be strongly cognizant of in any of the policies they came up with. One reason our the paper with Phil Divick is so simple, it's not simple basically to, to a layman, but to an economist, it, it, it's relatively simple and not particularly detailed. It's because Phil Divig said to me, we got to write this paper a little more carefully and simply than you know, the average paper, because we've got to make sure that bank regulators uh, who are not necessarily economic theorists can read it and understand the main point. And it seemed to me like they did. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly been taken up the world over. I can also um, say that the, the world was incredibly lucky that to have Ben Bernanke sitting in the Federal Reserve during the crisis. He'd been thinking about this uh, just exactly uh, as long as, as, as Phil, Divig, and I had. Uh, you know, our papers basically appeared in the same year. And so the, we, we, the world was very you lucky to have someone who had thought very carefully about Nobel it, done the best work on it. If you the, enjoyed this moment, of the, of the we have another special episode world. you won't it want to miss pleasing to you to have on the Nobel Prize origin prize. stories. Without question, we present there, clips there, there of laureates recalling formative moments, and Adam explores the unexpected factors that can shape the lives and careers of these great minds. Well, how nice that the three of Find you will be Acos, together in Stockholm. Find it on or wherever um, you listen to podcasts. Well, I, I need to finish because I know you, Nobel you Prize will Conversations have the world at your is a door. podcast series but, with Adam I, I Smith, to, um, just ask a co-production so of Phil and Nobel Prize outreach. That allowed you to the editorial team includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, and Steve me, Ross Claire at, at Yale Economics. Music by and Epidemic Sound. Steve um, was, a, was an amazing advisor and stupendous mentor to both of us. But Steve used to have this policy of not making appointments, but you would have to sit outside his door waiting to see when he had some time to talk. So 
Phil Divig and I um, sat outside his door, um, you know, waiting for for time to talk to him. Uh, and it, while out there, we we talked to each other quite a bit. And while we were in graduate school, we sort of came up with the idea we wanted to work together on something related to these issues, but we didn't actually um, start working closely on it until um, until we both essentially had just finished our, our PhDs. And then we basically spent all of our thinking hours in the period we were actually formulating this model uh, together and trying to understand it and simplify it. We had a more complicated idea in the beginning. We kept simplifying it. And Phil is the among the clearest thinkers of anyone I know in uh, in social science. So the fact that our model is 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 quite clear and simple would not be possible without him him as a, as a co-author. That's absolutely fascinating, and I imagine people listening to this the world over now will um, adopt your that that approach of uh, having students wait outside the door. And talking to each other, it was obviously tremendously yeah. successful. Yes, and he had a, he had an assistant um, who was very nice and gave us cookies and things like that while we sat out there too. So that that was also very helpful. So no one starved outside Steve Ross's door. <laughs> Combination of cookies and patience worked wonders. Yes. Gosh, it's been an enormous pleasure speaking to you. And uh, and, and you asked uh, very insightful questions. Thanks for the thanks for the the, the good question. Well, I look forward to speaking further. We'll have a chance to do a longer interview when things quieten down a bit. But for now, uh, I'll let you get on with the, the, uh, <laughs> the busy and exciting day ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye. You just heard a special episode of Nobel Prize Conversations. If you enjoyed this moment, we have another special episode you won't want to miss on Nobel Prize origin stories. We present clips of laureates recalling formative moments, and Adam explores the unexpected factors that can shape the lives and careers of these great minds. Find it on Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The editorial team includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.